the book of 2 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible or your electronic device, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the second of 10 lessons. So we're going to go a total of 10 Mondays in this series. So we should finish before Thanksgiving. And then uh, if the church is willing, we'll do another series on who knows what in February. <laughs> uh, Lord has not impressed upon me yet what that will be, but <laughs> it'll be from the Bible, believe it. <laughs> All right. In today's lesson, we see in chapter 1 that uh, Paul got comfort in the midst of trouble. And in today's movie clip, we'll see that Will Ferrell has plenty of trouble and needs a lot of comfort. <laughs> All right. was always the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of uh, 2 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. Paul was always in danger. You know, he went on three missionary journeys, and he was always uh, being persecuted and thrown in jail and beaten and everything, but God was like a safety net to Paul. He always took care of him, always saw him through it. He always had to go through the trouble, but God always took care of him in the trouble. God was always there to catch him and save him from certain death. So Paul felt the confidence, the security, the comfort of God's safety net, no matter what happened to him. Uh, and he was always willing and able to efficiently carry out the ministry that God gave him because he knew the Lord was there with him. And that idea of that safety net, uh, I was reading a story uh, about the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, you remember the famous bridge in San Francisco uh, over the San Francisco Bay, the Golden Gate Bridge. It was, it was being built between 1933 and 1937 uh, during the Depression. And most people think the Great Bridge in, there in San Francisco got its name because it's color. You know, a lot of people say, well, the sun shines on it, and it's golden. Actually, the strait that comes through there that's a mile wide is called the Golden Gate Strait, was named by John C. Fremont all the way back in 1846 when he was exploring there. Uh, and so that's where the harbor entrance is, where San Francisco Harbor is. Uh, and Fremont called, uh, named it that after the Golden Horn in Istanbul because it was very similar to that. The bridge actually painted, uh, uh, isn't painted orange. It's, it's, I mean, it's actually painted orange because the visibility in a fog is so much better with that particular color. And it was opened in 1937 as a suspension bridge uh, almost a mile long, which was the longest suspension bridge in the world until 1964. Over two and a half billion vehicles have crossed it since then. The American Society of Civil Engineers has declared it one of the wonders of the world. So it is pretty awesome. Uh, and before it was built in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, they were building bridges over all the major rivers like the Mississippi and the Ohio and, and, and also that when they were putting the railroad tracks and they were putting bridges over all the giant valleys and chasms that they had to cross. And uh, what they found was that a certain number of workers were going to be killed in making these bridges. They were going to fall to their death 
while they're up there constructing it. Uh, and the acceptable mortality rate was the loss of one life per $1 million of the cost of the project. That was acceptable. They said, we're willing to lose, you know, X amount of people, you know, building this bridge. That was just the way they thought back then. So the, the, uh, the budget for the Golden Gate Bridge was $35 million at that time and during the Depression. Who knows what it would cost now, probably $35 billion. But $35 million, and so they said, we're going to lose 35 people while we make the bridge. We're going to fall to their death. And you can imagine uh, that they would because uh, by the time, if they fell from where that bridge is, by the time they hit the water, they would be traveling at 70 mi 75 miles per hour. They would hit in icy water, which were, you, know, you could not survive with a very strong current. So they figured the survivability rate was zero. So if, if people did fall, that, you know, they were just done. <laughs> They'd let the body wash up, you know. Uh, and, you know, life is kind of like that. You know, the, the world just has these acceptable limits like that. And so when they put the budget together, you know, they, they didn't worry about that at all. They just said, well, you know, they'll know, they'll know the danger when they go to work here. So, uh, But the project engineer was a guy named Joseph Strauss, and he said, you know, that, that was unacceptable. And when, it, when a wor the first worker that did fall to his death, Strauss said, I'm not doing any more work until we do something about this. And they said, well, what do you want to do about it? There's nothing that can be do done about it. And he said, I want to put a safety net, a safety net under the bridge as it's being constructed to catch people that fall. And it will, you know, so the, the safety net will be like one of those nets that the trapeze artists at the circus use, you know, to catch them. Only this net would have to be a mile long and a hundred yards wide. I mean, that's a net, right? <laughs> and so when he told them that he demanded that, uh, naturally, especially the financial institution, Bank of America, who'd financed it, and all the other people that were involved in it said, that will, that will take forever. It'll delay the project, and it will increase the cost substantially. We can't do it. But he finally raised enough cane and talked to enough people and politicians that he convinced them to do it. They built the safety net under the bridge, and, uh, and look what happened. Uh, it was expensive, and it did seem to delay the project on the front end, but amazingly, they finished the bridge in 1937 early and under budget. And earlier than expected, they came to find out that because of the safety net, the workers were more comfortable and more confident and felt secure. And so they were, they were more efficient in their work and worked faster and got more done every day. They worked harder and they were more efficient. And it proved that the pressure of no safety net caused uh, more accidents and more deaths because they only actually, during the construction, had 19 guys. They were expecting 35, but only 19 fell. And so they said, I wonder why there were so few people that fell. Because they felt safe. Because they weren't fearful. They weren't nervous in their work, see? The pressure was off, and so they were a lot safer 
and a lot more efficient and it went much better than anybody expected. They ended up saving money and time on the project. Without fear, without the pressure, people are happier and more efficient in their work. And so what do we learn from the Golden Gate Bridge? As believers in Christ, we also have a safety net. You know the end from the beginning. God has promised, and we believe his promises, that he's coming back for us, and we're going to be resurrected and be in glory with him forever. That's our safety net. We have the safety net, which is God's mercy and grace underneath us. No matter what happens in this life as we go along, God is there to catch us. If we fall, he catches us, he forgives us, he reestablishes us. He makes us confident in our security, hopeful, free of fear in a world of danger. I mean, this is a troubled, dangerous world. We need a safety net, right? And my eternity is assured so much so that even now, God is with us and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me makes life a lot more safe and secure and less fearful, right? If we know that. And we do know that. Now in today's lesson, uh, the, the letter to the church at Corinth, just a little background on this. Uh, Paul wrote this when he was on his third missionary journey. He made three main missionary journeys in the book of Acts that are recorded in church history in your Bible. And on the third and last one, uh, he was in Asia Minor in that major city of Ephesus. And he was there for about three years. And while he was there, he wrote four letters to the churches at Corinth. He wrote four letters, two of which we have copies of in our Bible. First and second Corinthians were letters of Paul to the church at Corinth. Um, in one of those letters, Paul promised to come to Corinth. They had asked him, begged him to. They had all kinds of problems there. He promised to come to Corinth to address their problems uh, and, and give them guidance and help. They desperately needed that, his teaching and his help and his guidance. But Paul uh, got waylaid. He was arrested while he was in Asia held up, he was beaten very badly and thrown in jail, and he ends up on death row. They're going to execute him. <laughs> I mean, how much worse could it get? That's a bad thing, right? Well, let's talk about appearances versus reality. By appearances, Paul was prevented from ministering to a needy church. They needed him, he promised to come, and now he's prevented and he suffered physically. This poor guy who's serving the Lord suffered terribly, physically and emotionally. And the church at Corinth had fallen into the hands of false teachers, we find out, while he's in jail on death row. And they were criticizing Paul. They were trying to bring him down, make him look bad, because they wanted to take over. They had an economic interest. They wanted to charge the church a bunch of money. Uh, so they're saying, well, Paul promised to come. He's not here. Where is he? Said he'd show up. He's not a man of his word. He has no integrity. He's not a real apostle like we are. Uh, they slandered him. It makes us wonder. All this that happened to Paul, 
And he's God's man? He's God's missionary? What's going on here? Is God sovereign? Does God have the power? Is God loving and good? Well, if he's sovereign, if he has the power, if he's loving and good, how could a loving God who is all-powerful, how could he let this happen? How could he let this happen? What's the problem with that question? <laughs> There's a major problem with that question. The person who asked that question has an assumption that nothing good can come out of any of this. That's the assumption that they have when they ask that question. The world's asking this question all the time. You know, whenever any disaster ha happens or anybody dies, they say, where is God when Hurricane Katrina or whoever or whatever disaster or trouble comes? Where's your God now, you know? And what are they doing? They're making the assumption that nothing good can come from it. And by appearances, it can't. But we know as a fact, biblically, that it can. Uh, God can bring good out of evil. In fact, that is, that's really what life is like for the Christian. Uh, evil originally came into the world because of original sin. They disobeyed. God warned them, if you disobey, everything's going to go wrong. We call that the doctrine of original sin. Every denomination believes in it. The world has fallen. Human nature has fallen because of it. And so we are responsible for evil. That's when evil came into the world, and that's why. But God out of pure love, has done something. God, out of pure love, has intervened, first with the incarnation. He sent his own son, took on the flesh, came into the world to overcome evil and sin. And even now, God is at work, God's providence. The Bible says that God is providentially working in the lives of all believers. You know the passage there's many of them, but the one you know. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord. God is providentially working. Every circumstance, everything that's going on in the world, God somehow is going to work it together in the end so that it works out for good for his people. Even in the midst of your problems, God will give you comfort and help you persevere through these issues just like he did with Paul that's what's going on in the world today that's what's going on in every one of our lives God knows every circumstance everything that's going on in your life and he is working to bring it all together in the end how about biblical examples every single bible story just pick one how about Abraham and Sarah Sarah was barren couldn't have children. God had promised them children. Uh, well, the delay helped them learn to live by faith. So, so you see them in the beginning of the story, they have no faith. But in the end, in uh, Genesis 22, you see they have the faith to actually give Isaac up, their one and only son, their most cherished possession, they're willing to give him up to the Lord because they have such strong faith. Jacob their grandson spent 20 years with Uncle Laban, the biggest crook in the world. He cheated him over and over and over in the story. What's the result? Jacob, who had been incredibly proud, a real jerk, 
That's what his name basically <laughs> it meant. Deceiver, jerk. He learned humility and he learned to depend on the Lord. Just an awesome prayer after he leaves Laban and he's become humble and he prays to the Lord. His whole life has been changed through all this adversity. Joseph, Jacob's son, was sold into slavery, thrown into a dungeon. He ends up saving Israel, the whole nation, because of it. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness with rebellious Israel. They would never do anything right. He had all kinds of trouble for 40 years. Can you imagine going on a 40-year camping trip with a bunch of creeps? <laughs> well, that ended up the very next generation. Moses took them to the Jordan River, and they got to go in and form the nation of Israel and fulfill all of God's promises to give them a nation and make them a nation. Gideon, during the time of the judges, God only gave him 300 men. He thought it was impossible. We'll get wiped out. His army defeated 100,000 or more Midianites. David, King David, wrongly accused and abused by Saul, chased him around for 10 or 12 years trying to kill him, lived in caves, slept on the ground in the wilderness all that time. Can you imagine that? And every day you wake up, somebody's trying to kill you. David ends up being king, one of the greatest kings ever. Elijah, the prophet, Jezebel put a contract on him, sent special forces to kill him. And God preserved him, took care of him, and he ends up with 7,000 believers there. Paul, today's story, beaten, stoned, flogged, arrested. He ends up planning hundreds of churches and being the God's major implement to begin Christianity in the whole Mediterranean world and especially the Western world. And you could go on and on. Just pick one story, one character. They're all like that. They all had incredible adversity, incredible trouble, but God brought good out of it in the end. One thing they all did, they let their problems drive them to God. They actually got close, closer with the Lord because of all their problems. Rather than away from him and closer to the world, they got closer to the Lord. Look at your Bible. Let's see Paul's introduction uh, to, to his letter to the church at Corinth. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, so he introduces himself, and apostle means sent one. So he was specifically chosen and sent by Jesus Christ. Whose will was it? This is how the Trinity works, by the way. Jesus does the heavy lifting. God the Father has the will. So by the will of God, Paul was a sent one of Christ. And also, who's with him? His disciple Timothy, our brother, and the letters to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So that's what this is. This is a letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Typically, uh, they would, as he, he would dictate this to a couple of scribes, and so they'd have several copies. And uh, it might go to several of the house churches there in Corinth. And they would stand up when they met on Sundays and read aloud to the church body these letters. So Paul uh, says, grace to you and peace. That's really what uh, Paul is going to be telling them. 
Grace and peace and mercy has been given, endowed to us as being in Christ. God is always there to give us that free gift, that mercy that we don't deserve, and to take care of us in every situation. So that grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to you. Verse 3, now he praises God. I want you to know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God because he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. What he's leading up to is that God has taken care of me. Everything is great. I'm doing super. As you know, I was in jail on death row. They were going to kill me, but God saw me through it. I persevered, and now I'm on my way to see you. So he was really explaining why the delay. He said he was coming a long time ago and didn't show up, and he's explaining to them what happened, right? And he's going to defend his ministry in doing so, and he's going to praise God for the whole situation. It's awesome. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who, talking about what has God done what, to, to be praised like this, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that's the issue. Paul says, I was afflicted. I was down and out. I was this close to giving up. They were just getting ready to execute me. He comforts us in all our afflictions that we may be able. So God has a purpose in these afflictions, not only to change our lives, to bring us into total dependence to him and to humble us, but also to help us minister to others. So he's given us comfort so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God has comforted us and taken care of us and then intends for us then to go out and be sympathetic to others who have problems and give that same comfort to them that we have experienced from God. Uh, so this is obviously the main word here. He's going to use the word comfort ten times in this short passage of about uh, five or six verses. So that's obviously what he's getting at. God was involved, providentially involved in this whole situation as far as him not showing up at the church at Corinth, as far as him being in jail and in fear of his life. God was there and was involved and took care of it. And it was not only just for Paul, it was also for the church that this happened. For verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. There's a purpose in it. You see what he's saying? All these things that happen, we can't imagine what the purpose could be. How could anything good come out of this? But Paul's saying, look, I know now, looking back, there was a purpose in it. And it made me better able to comfort you and be a minister to you because of what happened to me. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, 
or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Basically, he said, you're mad at me because I didn't show up on time? You, you think I didn't keep my word? The fact is, these horrible things happened to me so that I could actually come to you with more power and more sympathy and more help than you dreamed of before. God is at work. So you can see some truths here. Uh, first of all, trouble and hardships are part of every life. Therefore, we all need God's comfort. I mean, it's a reality. This is, there's trouble out there, and we're going to have it. And so we need God's comfort. We need that safety net that only God can provide. And our troubles provide an opportunity to experience God's comfort. Without it, we'd never have that experience of God taking care of us. Secondly, God does not remove trouble or hardship. So I think if you're like me, you pray you know, <laughs> that he'd take it away. Take this problem away. Get me out of this, you know. But typically, God does not do it that way. Uh, think about it. When Jesus came into the world, he healed people, but he did nothing about the existence of diseases. Jesus left all the diseases. He left the world fallen as it was. Right? It's supposed to be that way. He left evil in the world. Now, evil was defeated on the cross, but we still experience it as we grow now. We'll experience it in the resurrection completely. Thirdly, our hardships equip us to help, us help others. That's what Paul's saying here. You know, I didn't realize it at the time, but now I feel far more equipped to help the church than I did before. And fourthly, God made Paul and us living witnesses for him. When, when you have trouble, I have trouble as Christians, we may not realize it, but the world is watching. The spotlight is on the church, on Christians. The world is watching to see how we respond. When trouble comes, when there's problems, will we be faithful? Will we turn away from the Lord? Will we deny Him, etc., etc.? Um. You know, I was thinking about all this affliction that Paul went through, and, and Paul says he's the God of all comfort. I mean, that kind of eliminates everybody else, everything, everything else as a source of this kind of comfort, right? Um, well, you're probably going, well, that can't be true. I was blah, blah, blah. Well, you've got to realize he's talking about permanent, eternal, spiritual comfort that only God can give. Not worldly peace. You know, worldly peace is just when the world stops to reload. <laughs> and believe me, if you're having peace right now, they're out there figuring out a way to make your life miserable. And it's just a matter of time. <laughs> they're coming. When we were in Israel uh, the last time, you know, we are asking the guy, well, have they fired any rockets lately? And he says, oh, no, no. They you, they." fired all their rockets. They fired off about three years of rockets, so there'll be peace for three years till they build them back up again. <laughs> so they have peace only when the other side has to reload, you know, to restock. That's worldly peace. When they say peace is an absence of conflict, 
baloney. It's just a delay. Conflict is coming. What does the world do? How does it seek peace, typically? Self-help books. Those are, a lot of those are bestsellers. They go to alcohol. That's always, you know, very temporary, of course. Drugs, sedatives, you know, that's all temporary. It doesn't last. It's not a permanent solution. How about TV gurus? Anybody watch Oprah or Dr. Phil? They've got the answers. Not really. That's all temporary. Godly peace and comfort is eternal security. Knowing the end from the beginning. Knowing that God, who has the power, is with you and actually loves you and has made these promises to you. It's permanent. We have a sense of eternal peace while living in a troubled world. Years ago, uh, you may know I teach a Thursday Bible study, and uh, years ago, this guy who'd been a regular for many years just kind of disappeared. I was wondering where this guy was, and anybody seen him? Nobody'd seen him, you know, so I started trying to find him. Uh, his, his phone was disconnected. <laughs> Everybody that used to know him, you know, didn't know anything about him. I uh, went over, drove by his house where he used to live. It was sold. It had a sold sign on it. I thought, wow, this is weird. So I started leaving messages everywhere. I finally found him at his parents' house. And I said, got him on the phone, and I said, hey, how are you? He says, how am I? Did you say, how am I? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, I was fired from my job. My wife left me and filed for divorce. Our house was foreclosed. My car was repossessed. I'm filing for bankruptcy for the second time in eight years. And the IRS is after me for back taxes. On top of that, I have the flu. <laughs> and worst of all, I'm 50 years old and I live with my parents. And then there was silence. <laughs> I'm thinking, what do I say to this guy, you know? And so I start playing, praying. Uh, Lord, what do I say? Well, that's the question I'm going to leave with you for a minute. I'm going to come back to that story. But my question is to you, were, th were there really any answers I could give that guy? I mean, you talk about a guy that's down and out, that's seeing some trouble and afflictions. What, what, what do you tell a guy like that? Is there any force? Is there any power? You tell him to watch Dr. Phil? <laughs> what do you do? Tell him to go to the library, to the self-help section? What do you do? Is, is there any peace and comfort out there for a guy that bad off? That's the question. And, of course, the principle that Paul was laying out that is that suffering and trouble comes from many sources. And this guy, I think, found them all. But where does comfort and peace come from? The comfort and peace that we need on an eternal basis. Where does it come from? Let's get back and, and look at chapter 1 again. Uh, we just finished uh, verse 6. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Verse 7, and our hope. So as we go through this, it builds our hope. Our hope for you is firmly grounded. 
We know it's going to come true. God is going to get it done. Knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. You're just like, we have a common bond. We're all in Christ. And so we all have the same comforter. We all live in the same world where there's plenty of trouble, but we all have the same Lord who comforts us. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. So here's laying out, you know, what he's been talking about. Our affliction, which came to us in Asia, Asia Minor over there near Ephesus, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Now, he, he, we couldn't do anything about it. We were overwhelmed, put in shackles, in jail, death row. Even so bad that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves. So what did God teach them? Don't trust yourself to get out of this problem. You've got to trust God. You have no control of this, of whether they execute you or not, of whether you come out of this or not. You have no control You've got to learn dependence on the Lord. So in order that we would not trust ourselves, but that we would trust God who raises the dead. Why would we trust him? He has the power of life and death. What's the obvious example? Jesus Christ's resurrection and the promise of ours. He has the power to raise even the dead. He certainly can take care of us. Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. And so Paul was delivered, got out of jail, and he's on the way to Corinth now. He's in Macedonia. And he will continue to deliver us. He on whom we have set our hopes. That's where his hope is, is in the Lord. He gave up his own efforts, totally trusting in the Lord. And he will come through. He will deliver us. And you also, joining in helping us through your prayers. You're a part of this too. You've been praying for us, I know, and you care about us. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. God works through the prayers of the church, of the saints, of the believers, Paul is saying. He's active, wants us to pray, wants us to turn to him in these situations so he can answer our prayers. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom. See the contrast here? He said, we've come to you, Paul and his disciples have come to the church at Corinth in godly sincerity. They're sincere in the ministry. They're sincere in representing God and, and in helping them. They didn't come like these false teachers in fleshly wisdom. But in the, they came in the grace of God. Paul came in by the grace of God, the free gift of God. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So we came in sincerity and we came in the Lord. But we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, 
as you also are our reason in the day of our Lord Jesus. So Paul's going to Paul's saying here, hey, when we're judged, when you when you the church is judged, you will be judged favorably, favorably because you prayed for Paul and cared about Paul. Paul will be judged favorably because he led all you to, to Christ and planted this church and has ministered to it. He's certain of that. So we can stop there uh, and we'll get into chapter 2 and 3 next week. But in conclusion, you're wondering whatever happened to that guy on the phone. (laughs) Is there any help for that guy? Is there any way out for that guy? It sounded hopeless, right? Well, I got to tell you, uh, while he was speaking and telling me all this, I had to dismiss three thoughts that I had. He's going through this laundry list of troubles, and I had three thoughts that I had to get out of my mind. Number one, Lord, put the poor guy out of his misery. <laughs> I mean, just bump him off. It's <laughs> Second, Lord, this is hopeless. I've seen a hopeless situation, and this is it. This guy's got, he doesn't have a chance. And the third thing, uh, it was a selfish thought. How do I get off this phone without getting tangled up in his mess? <laughs> Lord, don't let me get drug into this mess, right? That's what I had to dismiss. Instead, I was actually praying, how can I help this guy? And... Jesus told his disciples, I remembered, that the Holy Spirit would bring to their memory all that he had taught them. So I started thinking about Scripture. You know, what Scripture can I quote to this guy? And so 2 Corinthians 1 was the first one I went to. Listen, the God you believe in is the God of all comfort. He's there for you to give you comfort and peace. No matter what happens, know that God's with you. Romans 8 Who can separate us from the love of God? Can famine or distress or peril or sword? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 2 Timothy 1, 12, I know whom I have believed in, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And the guy's listening to this as I'm doing that. And so, again, a little silence. And I said, well, um, do you believe those passages? He said, yes. Does God love you? Yes. Has he forgiven you? Yes. Has Jesus overcome the world? Yes. Is Jesus coming back for us? Yes. Do you look forward to the resurrection? Is that where your hope is? Yes. And I'm convinced, and and his whole countenance, I mean, I couldn't see him, but it was kind of like his attitude and talking and everything just changed. The word of God is alive. 
And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change lives. And I'm convinced that no professional counselor, no psychiatrist could have helped that guy. No drug, no anesthetic, nothing in this world could have helped that guy. Especially not me. But the Spirit of God convicted him of the Word of God and, it, and he was lifted up. A good end to the story, I ran into him about six months later he had pretty much worked his way through all that mess, and he actually had started his own little business and was doing great. So, <laughs> praise the Lord. It was just an amazing thing. But the Lord is the God of all comfort, and no matter what we go through, He is our safety net. And having a safety net has its advantages, right? We live a happier, less fearful, more efficient life knowing that Christ is our safety net. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. You are the God of all comfort, and we know you're there. We know you always love us. No matter what the circumstance, you care, and somehow you're going to work it all out for good in the end, and we believe that. And we look forward to that in hope. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.